This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Adam today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Adam. Welcome back to the Adam Schefter podcast. We are in Las Vegas now already on the scene for Super Bowl 58. And to help us get ready for Super Bowl 58 in the matchup between the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs, we will be joined by CBS's lead sideline reporter, Tracy Wilson, who will be on the sidelines at Sunday's Super Bowl. This will be, depending on your perspective and depending on the story that she tells, either her fourth or fifth stint as a sideline reporter during the Super Bowl. She will explain that during the course of our conversation. But first, we'll be joined by the co-host of the Fancy Focus podcast, my friend, somebody imperative to the show, the host, co-host of the weekly six-pack Daniel Dopp as we go on to this week's Super Bowl six-pack. Thank you very much, Adam Schefter. Topic number one for the Super Bowl six-pack. Listen, I'm in Bristol, Connecticut right now, and you're in beautiful Las Vegas. Getting ready to watch a 49ers-Chiefs rematch, Adam. I got two questions for this first six-pack topic. One, with it being a rematch, I just want to talk about what you're thinking this game is going to look like and some of the history that these two teams have. And I want you to tell me a little bit about Vegas. I need to vicariously live through you because it's 40 degrees here. Give me a little sunshine in Las Vegas right now. Well, well, I got to say something, Daniel. As we record this right now in Las Vegas, it's not much warmer here than it is there right now in Las Vegas. As we speak, it is 49 degrees and rainy. What? So it's nine degrees warmer and rainy, and it's gray out. It's <laughs> supposed to be like that all week long. As I look at my Doppler forecast, if you don't mind hey me calling it such, we're, we're going to go up into the 50s this week. It looks like we'll get them into the 50s. But at night, in the low 40s and even, even, whoa, 39 and 35 and 37 on Friday through Sunday. So it's in the mid to high 30s over the weekend, Daniel. So did not expect that. No, did not expect that. It's already been some things that I were not expecting here at the Super Bowl. Like when my daughter and I landed Sunday afternoon and we were walking out, we heard an announcement over the PA system. Everybody kind of stand in place, not allowed to leave. President Joe Biden just landed at the airport. It shut down. So we were delayed at the airport there for, I would say, about an hour, roughly, while President Biden was going to Caesar's Palace for maybe the sports book there. I don't even know what he was doing there, but we got shut down there. And so already the weather's off, the travel schedule's off, there's construction on the main boulevard, shutting it down to one lane, how people in the city didn't understand that there was an event this week that might complicate things like this, the week is already off to a weird, unusual start. I'll just say that. Now, when we look ahead to the game, I think this is going to be the fourth head coach rematch in Super Bowl history. Okay? And do you realize, Daniel Dopp, that in the previous three, Chuck Knoll, Tom Landry, Jimmy Johnson, Marv Levy, Tom Coughlin, Bill Belichick, the head coach who won the first meeting, 
also in the second all three times. Ooh. Did you know that Andy Reid has a 3-0 record versus Kyle Shanahan, including a, a win in the last Super Bowl they played in right before the pandemic? So no. if history holds form, then Andy Reid will beat Kyle Shanahan in the fourth head coach rematch in Super Bowl history. We'll see how that works out. Heck yeah, that'll be something to follow. By the way, can you see the sphere when you're flying in? Is that yeah, cool we saw what we saw once we get out. Yeah, they have the, the Chiefs and 49ers helmets on it right now. So they're, they're in the, the sphere is in the spirit. You know, the funny thing is, I had one of my college friends reach out, and people don't understand the world that we live in a lot of times, right? So a college friend I don't hear from very often, he just texted me this morning. As a matter of fact, he's like, hey, I got tickets to see you two at the sphere the night before the Super Bowl. You want to come? <laughs> that's that's just what i want to do the night before the super right. bowl is be out in las vegas at the sphere <laughs> at the u2 con would i love to go see u2 at the sphere yes of course but not the night before the super bowl when i gotta get up about three in the morning for the, the pregame show and get ready when las vegas is going crazy like no you know again it reminds I, I i may have told the story here before i'll say it again the last time that i was ever out late at the Super Bowl was at my very first Super Bowl in Miami in February of 1995, January of 95, when the 49ers and Chargers were playing in the Super Bowl. And I was waiting for the Denver Broncos to hire Mike Shanahan as the head coach. He was then the 49ers offensive coordinator. And I had to be there and follow him and track him and get comment from him about whether he'd be coming to Denver. And of course, the night before the Super Bowl, I went out with some of my friends and I remember getting back to my hotel room at about 6.37 in the morning. The Miami Herald was already waiting at the foot of the door back in the day when they used to deliver newspapers to your hotel door room. And I said oh, to yeah. myself, that will be the last time that the newspaper beats me to my hotel room and gets there before I do. That'll never happen again. And it has never happened ever again. And it won't happen this Saturday night at the Spear <laughs> with you two either. <laughs> so good. All right. Topic number two, Adam Schefter. I got a question about one of my coaches, offensive coordinator Ben Johnson. He's been in the news a lot recently. One of the things is he's come back, talked about unfinished business in Detroit. Yeah. But I've also heard a lot of rumors about how maybe he priced himself out of this coaching position. What can you tell me about some of the things that have been thrown around about Ben Johnson? You know, there's so much talk being said. So let's just basically stick to, to me, uh, the situation as it did unfold and as it should have unfolded. The fact of the matter is Ben Johnson is regarded as one of the top assistants in the National Football League. That is beyond dispute, beyond argument. He is a great offensive coach, a great coach. Now, the way that he handled his business this offseason, I think that's a different deal. If you know that you're going to be canceling on the Washington Commanders, there's plenty of time to do that before they're in midair on the way to go interview both you and the Lions defensive coordinator, Aaron Glenn. And even if you know, even if you know, Daniel, that you're not going to take the commander's job, here's what I would have said to Ben Johnson. Ben, you don't have to take the job. Sit down. This is an ownership group that just paid a record sum, $6.05 billion for the commanders. They're flying to Detroit with their ownership group to meet you. I know you don't want to go sit down, listen to them for two hours. Your season's over. Go through the process. Be better for you, better for them. Hear what they have to say. They hear what you have to say. And at the very end, get up, thank them for their time, 
Wish them luck. Let them know how impressed you are, but how happy and content you are in Detroit and your sting. But to cancel on the midair, on the way there, like, Daniel, if I said to you, hey, come on out to Vegas. Let's have dinner Wednesday night. And you said, that sounds great. And you bought your tickets. And I texted you midair, Daniel, very sorry. I got tickets to go see you two at the Sphere again. I'm no. not going to be here on Wednesday night. <laughs> like, you don't do that, right? You don't do that, yeah. You don't yeah. do that. That's not the way to handle business. And it's unfortunate for Ben Johnson because as a coach, he is a great coach. The way this was handled, I think everybody would agree, was not the way it should have been handled. Is this one of those things that you think coming up to next year or following years, this will continue to maybe follow him? Or is this a, hey, you know what? He's new to this thing. This is part of learning the head coaching cycle. And no, it will follow him. It will come up again and it'll be like, okay, well, two years ago, he wasn't ready. He said he wasn't ready. Last year, he said he wasn't ready and he canceled. And what are we getting here? So is that going to sure. come up again? Absolutely. It's a part of his history, just like the way he's called games in a great, effective fashion also is. All right. Six-pack topic number three, another offensive coordinator, Adam Schefter. I thought for sure that we were going to see Cliff Kingsbury in Las Vegas being the OC there, but then he withdrew from the OC job from the Las Vegas Raiders. Now yeah. he is going to be with the commanders. Like, What's going on with Cliff, Cliff Kingsbury and the potential fallout from this move as well? Well, again, the NFL knows how to create drama, and it has created some great drama here already because here is – the best one of all, okay? Cliff Kingsbury coached Caleb Williams at USC last season, Daniel. Mm -hmm. Caleb Williams played high school football in D.C., Daniel. D.C., the commanders have the second overall pick, one pick behind Chicago. Now, I don't know that they're going to be able to get a trade done with the Bears to go up to number one, but we just now have a built-in storyline leading up to the draft in April about whether the commanders can get done a trade that moves them up from two to one, that allows them to bring home Caleb Williams. My question, and I think the real question that matters is, is there another quarterback that the Bears really right. like? Do they like? Do they like Drake May or Jaden Daniels enough that they would be willing to trade the first overall pick and the right to draft Caleb Williams. And I don't know that they will, to be perfectly frank. I think there's a real question about it. That's the fly in the ointment right there, whether they would be willing to move on from him. I do not have any indication so far that they will. And so can Caleb Williams then go John Elway, Eli Manning, and try to make something happen if that's what he wants? We'll see how that works. He doesn't have an agent. Back in the day, John Elway had Marvin Demoff, who was very calculating and very smart about everything he did. And if you haven't watched that 30 for 30 yet, please watch that. It is unbelievable, the 30 for 30 that Marvin Demoff wrote about the draft in which he represented John Elway and Dan Marino and how teams viewed them and how they went off the board where they did in the 1983 draft. As for... Eli Manning, he had Tom Condon. Tom Condon helped mm -hmm. the situation to where Eli was dealt to New York. Now, Caleb Williams doesn't have an agent. If all of a sudden he hires an agent in late March, early April, we'll say, here we go. Something yep. is amiss. Here we go. Something could be coming. But right now, it's early. Who knows how it's going to happen? All we know is that Cliff Kingsbury is in Washington, 
And we will see now how that story unfolds. I cannot wait to see how this top of the draft is going to pan out because it's not just the three quarterbacks. It's also the potential trade of where will Justin Fields go if he does move on, which will be very interesting for all that. All right. Topic number four, Adam Schefter, Mike McDonald, another coordinator, this time on the defensive side of the ball for the Baltimore Ravens, ended up becoming the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. Why did Seattle choose Mike McDonald coming out of the Pete Carroll era? Well, they loved him. And if Baltimore had won in the AFC Conference Championship game, I think the Seahawks would have waited till after oh, wow. the Super Bowl to interview, talk with, and even potentially hire Mike McDonald. They love Mike McDonald. My question, Daniel, is not why did Seattle choose Mike McDonald, because Mike McDonald was a runner-up in Tennessee, Carolina. They both loved him. He was going to get a head coaching job at some point in time. My question is, why did Mike McDonald, whose wife – was a cheerleading coach for the Washington Redskins, whose wife's family lives in Washington, who was working in Baltimore. Why did he agree to go across the country for a head coaching job when he very well might have wound up with the Washington one? And I asked that question to a couple of people because I was curious, wow, how did Mike McDonald get to Seattle? And I was told without hesitation John Schneider, the Seahawks GM, he loved him. And because of the way John Schneider presented and because of the faith and belief and conviction that Mike McDaniel had in the Seahawks general manager, John Schneider, he agreed to uproot his family and move all the way to Seattle because of his affection and feelings for the Seahawks general manager. So I think Mike McDaniel might have had a chance at the Washington job. And I think the fact that he was so in love and enamored with John Schneider that made it such that that is why he took the Seattle Seahawks head coaching job and didn't opt to stay in Washington if that option had eventually come up. Yeah, pumped to see how he's going to do in Seattle as well. All of these coordinators, just excited to see what they're going to do in their new places. And Adam, that kind of leads me into topic number five of our six-pack With these new coordinators taking over head coaching jobs, we have guys that have been head coaches in the NFL for a number of years that it feels like we're not going to see leading a team in 2024. Obviously, Bill Belichick, one of the guys that does not have a job yet, Mike Vrabel, and Pete Carroll, who I just mentioned. What does this hiring cycle mean for guys like them? Well, here's what I think it means. I think it's going to be felt next season. Next season, Daniel, because they're not getting head coaching jobs now, unless there's something that we don't expect, like an Andy Reid walking away suddenly. And Mike Vrabel played in Kansas City. But anyway, right now, these three veteran coaches who have proven their credentials with long resumes, they've won and they're unemployed. So here's what I think happens, Daniel. Next year, when there's a team that is one in three, two in five, two and six, and they're out of the playoffs, their fan bases are going to be screaming for their owners to hire one of these guys. But whereas we now have seen firings occur during the course of the year, some, you know, maybe you get one in September, October, sometimes they trickle in, but usually teams wait until the end of the year. This year we saw five firings after the regular season ended. Those five firings after the regular season now, they might trickle next year into early mid-November. Because if and when a team fires its head coach next winter, next spring, or next fall, they then would be free to go talk to, interview, 
Bill Belichick or mm-hmm. Pete Carroll or Mike Vrabel. So I think where you're going to see this have the biggest impact potentially is on next season, the speed at which owners make head coaching changes, the lack of time that they give to some of these head coaches on teams that'll be struggling because the sooner a team makes a change, the sooner they can go talk to one of these guys. And I remember when Washington hired Mike Shanahan, who was on the sidelines for a year, it hired him in like December and it hired him in December. We may see a repeat next year with Belichick, Rabel, Carroll could be where teams are firing a coach in November so they can start talking to candidates and make a move to land one of these big fishes. All right, let's close out this Super Bowl six-pack with more conversation. To me, at least, on the guy that I'm most surprised does not have a coaching job, Bill Belichick, right? He's going to be 72 next year. Everything that you just talked about, he wrote a really heartfelt letter, which I thought was very cool to be mm-hmm. able to – out to the Patriots fans. What can you tell me about his potential prospects and future, like you said, heading into next year? Well, here's what I would say. What's amazing is when – he and the Patriots parted ways. You would have thought that every team in the league would have come to him with a coaching opportunity. And you would have thought somebody that was as dry with the media as he was might not have too many media opportunities. And so far, the best I can tell, there have been multiple, multiple, multiple media organizations that have reached out to Bill Belichick. And the only one that he actually interviewed for twice was the Atlanta Falcons. Now, there may have been some other conversations, potentially, under the table, but the Falcons interviewed him twice. So he has all these opportunities to go into the media to work as one of us, but had only one chance to become a head coach in the NFL. And now I think now's the time for Bill Belichick to sit back, think about what he wants to do next, evaluate what's the best path back to the NFL. He could opt to work in the media He could opt to stay removed. By the way, I can tell you this already, Daniel. There are going to be any number of teams that want to hire Bill Belichick as a consultant advisor for next season already. I can tell you that for a fact. I can imagine. So he's going to have options. It's just a question of what he wants to do. And now that we know that it doesn't seem like he's going to get one of these head coaching jobs, he can sit back, take some time, and make a decision about what is best for Bill Belichick and his future. All right. Bill Belichick knows something about coaching in Super Bowls, and the CBS lead sideline reporter Tracy Wilson knows something about working in Super Bowls as well. She'll be working on Sunday in the game between the Chiefs and the 49ers, working on the sidelines, covering the Chiefs, who she's been with throughout their historic run. She's been with them at each of their conference championship game appearances, all their wins, knows the players knows the particulars, knows the history of the Chiefs, and we thought who better to bring in than a Michigan woman herself, CBS's lead sideline reporter, the great Tracy Wolfson. Tracy, thank you very much for joining me. Busy week in Las Vegas. I'd like to know how you feel about approaching a week in which you're going to be the sideline reporter for a game in which tens of millions of people We'll be watching. All eyes will be on you and Jim Nance and Tony Romo and CBS and someone Nickelodeon as well. But how do you approach a week like this? Adam, now you're making me nervous, you know? Well, I'm try- I, I not- apologize. <laughs> I try not to think about that. That's the best way to do it. Often, right? I, I truly do. I treat it like another game. The week leading up is so much bigger. 
right? I mean, we're starting, you know, every day you have something going on, especially once you get to Vegas, you're there a week earlier. So whether it's Goodell's press conference or your meetings with the teams or whether you, you know, you have an event to host or be at, um, you're focusing a lot on that. And the prep, the prep comes easy. First of all, I mean, we've seen these teams. I've seen Kansas City, I don't know, five, six times. Who knows this this year? So that comes real. And I'm going to be on that sideline for this game. So that comes really easy. Um, and then it's just trying to find out that fresh information. And then certainly once you lead up into that Sunday, that's kind of when the like butterflies start hitting and, you know, you get like up really early and you have to head to the team hotel and start your reports. And then you get anxious and you're just like, let's kick off already. Because as you know, once the game kicks off, it's a regular game. You're reacting. You're doing exactly what you would be doing. And actually you're doing half the work because you're only on one sideline. So it's really pregame, the lead up, right before kick, and then, of course, postgame when you want to grab that final interview. Do you go back over the notes of the Chiefs games that you did at all this year? Do you look over any of the interviews that you've done and the information that you've accumulated during that time? I do, um, but not most of it's not relevant anymore. Right. And a lot of it's been out there and said and done, and you're trying to find the fresh stuff. And in a game this big, of this magnitude, we have so many bells and whistles, you know, whether it's the extra cameras or the replays or the graphics, and and we certainly have more people on the broadcast. Uh, you're going to let the game play. So you're not adding in those extra stories you would maybe do during a normal game, unless it's really relevant to what's happening on the field. And I love that as a reporter, as it is. I really like to find what's fresh, what's happening down there, and how you can bring it to the broadcast, as opposed to coming in with all these canned stories the Super Bowl's not for that. So, you know, really what we talked about is probably not going to really be brought up unless it's in context of a play or something that takes place. You're living in the moment and giving us real-time information, like all of a sudden, hey, whatever's happening on the sideline, guy is kneeled over, he's trying to catch his breath, they're changing their shoes, whatever it may be, right? All of that matters that day. And there's not a lot you could do to prepare for that. Am I missing something? You're, there's not. And it's all, you're the eyes and the ears of what's taking place down there. Now you can prepare in the sense of, you know, you know what Patrick Mahomes is like, you know, down the stretch of a game, you know, barely does he panic. Although we saw it early in this year, a little bit of frustration, which was very rare for the Kansas City Chiefs. But all of a sudden, if something's off and you notice that, you can bring that back, right? But for the most part, you're just reacting. Injury is obviously a huge part. What you hear from the offensive line coach and that stuff, that prep, you know, okay, maybe, you know, they're going to be without you know, one of their linemen, Joe Tooney, for this game, well, you're going to be watching that. So you might bring in what's happening there. But for the most part, that's what I love about it. You're almost like an investigative reporter down there. Well, you've also been with the Chiefs each of the last two weeks, and you've been with the Chiefs during each of their last six years during their AFC championship game wins like or losses. You've been with them on the sideline. What do you remember from Patrick Mahomes back then compared to Patrick Mahomes now? Mm, that's a great question. I mean, I think back then it was more um, him, you know, this year is very different. I think then when we look at those past teams, he had a lot more weapons. I mean, he had Tyreek Hill during a lot of that time. And he felt as though, you know, he can make something happen, but he had the guys in the back end to be able to help him. Now, as you watch him and 
they take the the name game manager, you know, when they use that is it's really I think it's a flattering term, right? But people think of it negatively. But right now, that's what Patrick Mahomes has learned to do. That's that's who he is right now. He's managing the game because he knows he has that experience and he knows you can't ride those highs and lows. You got to play even keel. You cannot turn the ball over. Like all the basics, all the stuff he's learned from the experience in the past doesn't try and do too much. And especially with this team, you can't do that. And then, oh, by the way, you're just going to rely on your trusty weapon of Travis Kelsey, who, you know, did not have the best of regular seasons, but come postseason, you know, that's the guy you're going to rely on. And so I've seen I've seen Mahomes mature and evolve and the play calling evolve. And they feel it's just trust, a trust now that he's going to get it done in those moments. And you know, a lot of this team was there during all those runs. And so, of course, with Andy Reid as well. So um, I haven't seen a drastic change, but I think this year is very different than the years past that he's been in this position. It's interesting because we were both in Kansas City on Christmas Day, which had to be probably the low point of their season. They did not look like a team that was ready to make any type of Super Bowl run on Christmas Day. They got essentially blown out at home against Antonio Pierce and the Las Vegas Raiders. And here they are since then. I almost feel like that game was a wake-up call to them that they're playing at a different level. To you, what has been the difference? Because when you bring up Travis Kelsey also, he did look old and tired during the season. He looked like he had fallen off. And now that the postseason has come, he's dialed it up. Patrick Mahomes has dialed it up. It's like a totally different team. And what in your mind can we attribute this to? Yeah, I'm going to say, I'm going to just say it out loud that I never really doubted the Chiefs throughout the season, even when they lost. I'm like, they're going to figure it out. That's just the Chiefs, right? That's who they are. That's Andy Reid. That's Patrick Mahomes. Like, you just are like, they're just going to figure it out. And they did. And I think what they realized is they have to surround themselves by the guys that they trust. And they had to really be simple. And I remember after that game and then going into the playoffs, it was all about simplicity not try and do too much and obviously take care of the football. I mean, was huge, right? Patrick was trying to do too much and he admitted that. And so Rashi Rice became that number one receiver that he can trust out there. Travis Kelsey had a week off on week 18. That was huge. Yes, it was. That people don't remember yeah, that. I know. When a lot of guys got to rest, that was so big for this team. And you know what else they did? They realized, you know what? it's okay to rely on your defense. Your defense is tops in the league. Steve Spagnuolo, what he's been able to do, why not ride your championship defense? It's okay. Everyone wanted to get the ball back to Mahomes. Now you're like, just take care of the football and let your defense take care of it. It's okay. And I think that's where the wake-up call came. They all came. And it's hard for Andy Reid, right, to play run the football. control the clock possessions. And I always love this chiefs team when they run the football and stick with it. But a lot of times you have Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. You don't want to stick with the run, right? But I truly believe they're a better team now because they learn that and they understand that they could take advantage of their defense and they're winning it for them as well. And that's okay. You just want to hoist that trophy at the end of the season. You know, I remember somebody saying to me after week 18, Travis Kelsey, we were watching him practice. He's got the juice back in his legs. I'm like, well, that'll be interesting because he was on my fancy team this year and he was good, <laughs> but he wasn't Travis Kelsey. And I'm like, let's see the juice back. And he's got the juice and then some back. All right. You covered a lot of the 
Tom Brady wins conference championships, Super Bowls. Do you see any similarities between that Patriots dynasty and the way that this Chiefs team has run through opponents and built its own little dynasty? Yeah, no doubt. I think when I stand back as a sideline reporter and watch from afar, you notice a total team effort all in. And you could really sense when teams have it and they don't by how the team is all in one. Offense, defense, special teams, no fragmentation. They believe in each other. They support each other. It sounds really corny, but it's so true. I mean, you've had the best, most talented teams, and yet they can't get there because they're not all together. You're going to say something. You're, you're gonna, no, no, no. I'm, I'm listening. Keep going. Keep. But I, but I feel like that is what you saw with the Patriots, hmm. right? You have a strong leader in Bill Belichick, just like you have a strong leader in Andy Reid, yep. who also, you know, gets the team to believe and also keeps everything under wraps in one house. You have the Patriot way and you have the Chiefs way and why it might not be out there or the Chiefs way. They've got their way. You know, and they're not going to reveal what they do. They understand how to work, you know, together, just like the Patriots do. And then you have a leader at the quarterback position that everyone respects and believes in. That's a Hall of Famer that just wins, finds a way to win, especially down the stretch. Right. We you always looked at Tom Brady and you felt like if he had the ball last, they were going to win. You could say the same about Patrick Mahomes. We saw the 13-second game. I mean, that is it. And I think there's so many similarities between these two teams when you look at them and, and their success. This will be your fifth Super Bowl on the sidelines, or the fifth Super Bowl that you served as a sideline reporter for. And that's a good way to put it. <laughs> right? The fifth Super Bowl that you served as a sideline reporter for. What stands out to you from the other four Super Bowls that you've done that will always be burnished in your mind about certain things that stand out from whatever Super Bowl that you worked as the sideline reporter for? Well, you say this is going to be my fourth. Fifth. My, I'm sorry, my fifth, but it's actually, okay, so my fourth as the lead sideline reporter actually covering the game. Okay. The other Super Bowl was the Harbaugh Bowl when the lights went out. Yep. Now, I was just pregame and postgame. I was still working college at the time. Ah. So if you remember, it was Steve Tasker and Solomon Wilcox. And they had them being the sideline reporters. They were us using analysts. And they hired me to do pregame and postgame. And I remember going in at the end of the pregame and saying, you know, where's my mic and where am I going to stand? And they're like, oh, you're, you're not doing the game. Like, you got to go stand in the green room and watch the game. You're only getting on if the lights go out. And they said that to you? Yeah. What happened? <laughs> well, it was scripted. They must have known. The, they must have seen the script, I'm the, the one script, who did Tracy. it. I'm the one who pulled the plug. <laughs> now we know. We got to the bottom of it, right? Forget Beyonce. It was all me. <laughs> but That's funny. I was actually in the green room watching. And you know who was there for a lot of the time? Jack and Jackie Harbaugh. They were there with me pregame. And then we were watching the game. And I remember wow. the lights didn't go out in the green room. We were watching like every other person. And I look on the screen and I go, did the lights just go out? So I freaked out. I ran. I got my earpiece. I got my microphone. I went out and onto the field because they needed all hands on deck. 
And because of my college connections, and we were in New Orleans, and I had done a lot of LSU games, there were a lot of LSU people working the sidelines, and they gave me the information as to why we weren't starting the game, even though the lights went on, there was the still, remember the still photography, the still pictures on the sideline? One sideline was working, the other wasn't. I came on the air, I did the report, and then that was it. I actually got on the Super Bowl, but I wasn't supposed to. Was your heart pounding when you came out of the Super Bowl for the first oh time? Oh my God, you- I couldn't, I couldn't, yeah. but it happened so quickly. And I think Nance even was like, wait, Tracy's, we're sending it to Tracy. Like he didn't expect me to show up either. I don't even know if they had my graphic ready. I mean, it was all, all a blur. I remember my husband was at home watching like a normal fan at a Super Bowl party. And all of a sudden I show up on the, on the air and then I just disappear. And that was it. I did one hit in that game. See, it's funny you say that, and I'm thinking of your heart pounding, and we're going to get to the other Super Bowl games and moments you remember. I want to hear that. But I've had a couple of moments in my career where they were about to come to me, and holy moly, like the first time that I ever did Sports Reporters, which was a show I grew yeah, up I watching, it. and I'm sitting in a chair with Mike Lupica and Mitch <laughs> Album, and they're coming to me to give a parting shot. And the first time it ever happened, my mouth was so dry and i've never had this feeling or sensation ever before but i could feel the blood coursing from my toes to my brain like i could feel it all it was the most bizarre sensation the other time it happened and you're all hot and flustered right you're like like, you just start going and then you calm down but holy moly and the other one was when i was doing i did sideline reporting not to try to take your job but i did sideline (laughs) reporting for Al Michaels and John Madden for two preseason games, two preseason games. And the first time that Al Michaels and John Madden were throwing down to me, which was at a hall of fame game. Oh my God. I I had a very similar sensation. Like I thought maybe I might have a heart attack here. They might have to (laughs) carry me and get some other sideline reporter calling Tracy Wolfson to replace me or something like that. that. And those moments. So I would imagine Maybe, maybe not the Super Bowl moment. You just all of a sudden they call you. No, I couldn't believe it. I I couldn't believe it. And you want to you don't want to mess up either. You know, I mean, you're like one shot. But you know what? It turned out after that they decided to use reporters because they realized how important it was to have like a real reporter down there who kind of knew how to get the information. So so this will be the fourth game. The fourth Super Bowl that you've done the sidelines for. I stand corrected. So when we look back <laughs> at the pre- when we look back at the previous three other Super Bowls that you served as the sideline reporter for, what stands out? Okay, so um the first one was Super Bowl 50, and it was Peyton Manning's final game. And it was uh, my first real, you wow. know, and so everyone asked me like your favorite memory, you know of your career, right? That still is atop the list. I don't think it'll ever change because it kind of was that moment when I'm like, I remember being done with that interview afterwards and being like, oh my God, I just covered the Super Bowl. And it turned out it was a great interview. And that, speaking of being nervous, right? And I knew it was going to be Peyton. You had this feeling it was going to be Peyton's final game, right? But you didn't know how to ask it. And you wanted to make sure you asked it the right way. You weren't going to just be like, so this is it, you know? You want to lead him there without clobbering him over the head. Exactly, exactly. And so I was sitting there and I was like, okay, how am I going to word this 
And so I did. And then he had that whole Bud Light line where he should have talked about Coors Light because he was a, you know, a Bronco, <laughs> but he did that. And it was great. It was just a moment. And I remember like walking away being like, so happy. Like, I can't believe I just had that opportunity. So that to me was certainly my, my favorite one. Um, and then you go to the Tom Brady one where everyone wit witnessed me trying to get Tom Brady when he wouldn't do the interview yet. And everyone's watching from above with the scrum that stormed the field around me. Mm. And people thought I like disappeared and they thought I got hurt and trampled. And to me, it's funny because the rhetoric out there was that, you know, it was really, it was difficult for me to get in there and, you know, what happened and what the media do. And to me, to be honest, I was right there. Like, you know, as a reporter, like your number one job is to get that interview at the end of the game and you're not going to lose it. So I took off running as soon as he won. And I remember I held on to him, but the media got so tight inside. They were stepping on my wire to my microphone. My microphone dropped and I'm like, he's going to come to me and I'm not going to have a microphone. So I remember falling, like ducking down onto the ground. People thought I disappeared and I got hurt. My audio guy hands me a wireless mic and then I like jump back up. It was the fun. And Tom, the whole, the whole time's like, Tracy, just, I just want to say hi to this one. I just want to give a hug to this guy. I just want to. So I was there literally holding on to him the whole time until he was finally ready to do that interview. But the fact that all the world was watching that and I didn't know, I had no idea what we were showing. <laughs> that was bizarre. It was just strange. And I remember I left and the, the interview wasn't even great. You know, like by that point, you know, and Brady had done it so many times, you know, it was like, so by that point, I walked off and I remember my PR head of PR was like, everyone wants to talk to you. You know, we got to bring you into media. And I'm like, what happened? And then I realized that all of the world basically witnessed that. So that was crazy. Uh, but, you know, being in college and experiencing, you know, teams rushing, fans rushing the field, media rushing, ah. I was kind of used to it. You know, I did the kick six. It didn't get more crazy than that. So that didn't scare me or bother me. It just was it was just weird how it all unfolded and the whole world was watching. I put in a request to get you on the podcast after that Super Bowl. I've been waiting till now, and I'm finally <laughs> glad that we were able to get this done since that request has been Come waiting. Come on, go right to the PR, source, Adam. We are department that entire time. Yeah, I'm glad we were able to finally do this. So now you're going to do the Chiefs. Do you have a preference whether you prefer to speak to winners or losers? Is it harder to talk to a loser after their spirit and season has just been crushed? What's your thinking going into a game like that? I am really such a pro at this point of doing a loser interview because that's my job in basketball at the final four championship oh, wow. game. Usually, um, you know, usually when certainly in the final four, I mean, when you get those bigger names and bigger teams, I'm always doing the loser interview, whether I'm doing the winner and the loser. So I've been in that situation and it's difficult because you have to have the right tone but you also know there's not much to it. You just want them to talk. You want to tee it up for them. You don't want to put them in a bad position. You do have to ask the question that needs to be asked, right? I mean, in basketball, like, why didn't you call that timeout or whatever might have happened or what happened down the stretch of the game or, you know, tell me about that play or going for it on fourth down, right? I mean, you're going to have to yeah. ask about a specific situation that maybe led to the loss. And then you're going to ask what he's going to tell the team, you know, or or the emotions and how difficult this is. or so. It's it it takes a certain tone and it, it's of course you never want to have to be in that position, but 
that I get. The winning interview, I mean, there's just elation, right? I mean, it's it's a rush. It's a high. And your, your smile is like from here to here, whether you're like a fan or not a fan, right? And and it's hard. We, we're not fans, right? We don't right. root for teams, but you do sense that emotion and, and you kind of get excited for them. And then you love to be in that position, no doubt. Well, you root for people, but you mentioned the interview that you did with Peyton Manning and you mentioned the interview that you got up the mat for to do with Tom Brady. But of these loser interviews, if you will, which was the hardest one or which is one that stands out to you about how challenging it was? There were two. Um, it was uh, Virginia when Tony Bennett, when they lost to mm. the number, the one number one seed lost to a 16. Wow. That was really, really hard. Because... And Tony Bennett, he is one of the best guys. I don't know if you've ever been around him. And the way he handled that interview was pure class, pure class. And I respect him to this day. And so that was difficult. Um, and then it was Coach K because, you know, again, mm. end of an era, right? Like last game he coached walking off with that loss to UNC, no less. And for me, that meant a lot because I was a runner. One of my first jobs for CBS was a runner for the final four. And Coach K was there. And my job was to pick up Mike Krzyzewski and Mickey Krzyzewski at the airport and drive them around a lot of that week. And so mm. he was the first person I had ever met really in the basketball wow. world. And to come full circle, to be able to do that final interview with him was huge. So I think those two really stand out to me. So how does it make you feel to go from a runner who's picking up people who once went to the University of Michigan, who worked at local news stations and is now in a position to be working the sidelines for a fourth time during a Super Bowl, maybe a fifth if we want to go there. Right, exactly. Semantics. Uh, it's crazy. I'm not going to lie. Like when I think back to my path and how I got to where I am and I talked and mentor a lot of young men and women trying to get into this field. And it's really different now, that path, right? You could do a lot more stuff while in college than we were able to do um, at Michigan. And so to think I had this dream since I was eight, nine years old. I mean, I was watching Willow Bay on the inside stuff and like, I want to do that. I want to talk sports for the rest of my life. And so to think that I was able to find my path and find my way to be able to do that. And the fact that it's at CBS where I started, you know, as a, as a runner and a researcher and, you know, it's, it's really come full circle. And I do look back and feel very fortunate that I've had the opportunity and been able to get there. It takes a lot of luck, but it also takes a lot of perseverance and never giving up. And there were moments where I felt like I could, you know, was ready to give up, or maybe I didn't know if I'd make it in this world. Um, so yeah, I do look back and feel very proud and ho also hope that I pay it forward and others you know, look at me and say, oh, I, I could do that too, you know? So um, I do feel very fortunate. Well, we are fortunate to have you today. I appreciate the time you've given me. I'll look forward to seeing you in Las Vegas. I'm going to be hanging around the CBS crew probably a little bit more than I ordinarily would here in the coming days. My first few days there, ESPN is really not on air in Las Vegas until Wednesday or Thursday okay. of Super Bowl week. And I'm taking my daughter out there Sunday. Yeah. So I will be her oh, runner, great. spotter, helper, <laughs> 
supporter for three, four days. That's what I am doing at the Super Bowl. And I'm taking her to the Nickelodeon CBS functions. So you guys are stuck just kind of dealing with me in the background. I am to her what you once were to Coach K and his wife. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I'm here too. So if you need anything, we'll hang. Of course, if Dylan needs anything, I'm here as well. Flying in on Sunday. So I'll be there for the week as well. As am I. Tracy, we look forward to seeing you there. Thank you very much for the time today. I appreciate you. Appreciate it. And go blue. There is CBS's lead sideline reporter, Tracy Wolfson, who I've got so much respect and regard for. Our paths have crossed through the years. We've spoken at a number of events together, gotten to know her over the years. And I will say this, the more time I spend with her, the more time I am impressed with her. I will say the more time I spend with her, the more impressed with her I am. She is an incredible woman. Um, Love how she does her job. Love how she handles herself. She's tremendous. And uh, we've become big friends of Tracy Wolfson and thank her for her time. So here we are in Las Vegas, Daniel. And you know that I am a big uh, basketball DFS player. Love to play basketball DFS. Love golf DFS. Those are my two favorite things to do. So I landed in Las Vegas on Sunday night and went to my phone on Monday morning to reserve my entries in the Monday games, NBA games, and the upcoming golf tournament of the week, whatever it is. I don't even know what it is. And I cannot get in. If I'm in a restricted space, Nevada doesn't allow you to play DFS. So I I am so blown away, amazed, disappointed, angered, confused, befuddled, pick the word, by all of this. I can walk down to my hotel and bet on anything that I want. Props, games, play slot machines, back around, whatever you want. But I can't reserve an entry in DraftKings or FanDuel on tonight's NBA games or this weekend's golf tour. Like, what world and universe are we living in that you can't do that? And who is responsible for banning you from playing some $3 game on your phone? Like, what is the problem with that? Like, you know, it's crazy to me. It is crazy, Adam. I'm worried because that's sort of we've talked about this on this show. Like DFS is your vice because you don't drink, you don't do others. Like I'm worried you're going to go out to a YouTube concert tonight because you don't have anything else to do and there's no DFS for you to be able to play. I mean, that's incredible. Like I, I'm in the gambling capital of the world. Of the world. They, <laughs> they've said it so that you can't play trackings or fantasy. Like what is that about? That is just crazy to me. I can't believe it. I'm just completely shocked. And that's where we are. So, again, we talked about Biden landing. We talked about some of the craziness of the Vegas trip already. Now we got this. My vice has been taken from me. So now I have to wait till after Super Bowl 58, after we get back home, before I can get back on DraftKings or FanDuel to log in to go play daily NBA or the upcoming weekend's golf tournament. Just absolutely absurd. All right. Bonkers. That story for another day. We want to thank our great guest today, Tracy Wilson. I want to thank you, Daniel Dobb, for hosting this week's Six Pack. My great producers, Christina Buswell, Sarah Abbott. Please join us again in this space next week when we'll be back to look back on Super Bowl 58 and begin to look ahead to Super Bowl 59. Until then, enjoy the game, everybody. Have a great week. Be well and stay safe.